Mac Power Users, episode 651, 3,041 press releases. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mac Power Users. I'm David Sparks, and joined by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hey, Stephen. Hello. I am excited. It is time for a Mac Power Users feedback episode, and we've got so much feedback today. I'm looking forward to this one. This document is busting at the seams. Yeah, yeah, we got a lot to talk about today. Uh, things going on, uh, betas to talk about, new apps, new software, bunch of questions from listeners. This is going to be a fun one. These are always, and I always say this every time, but these are always some of my favorite shows to record because so many of our shows are focused. Like last week, we did a whole episode on craft. Um, it is kind of fun to run rampant and roughshod <laughs> over the Mac ecosystem once in a while. So, you know, yeah. we, we like that. We like to mix it up once in a while. That's right. Before we get started, uh, housekeeping. Uh, we've just got a few days left to get your calendar. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to end uh, in just a few days. It wraps up on August the 5th at about, I think it's 10 a.m. Eastern uh, that's a Friday, so it's the Friday after this episode comes out. So yeah, it's uh, it's right at the tail end of it. So we're going to talk some about my my workflows. You would ask me about some of this, and we're like, hey, let's talk about it on the show. So we're going to dive into how I put this together. But just a few days left to back it, so go check it out. Yeah, I mean, uh, you put your journalist hat on for this, and I, I really want to kind of dig into that today. Um, the shortcuts for Mac field guide webinar series. We're now, uh, we've re now recorded four of the five and, uh, they're getting uploaded to the course for the people who bought the plus edition. Thank you everybody who did that. It's now, uh, I don't have the exact time. I think it's just a little over five hours of additional content at this point in addition awesome. to the eight and a half. To, so it's, it's really fun. I like this, uh, this model because I'll be able to do more webinars on it as things evolve with shortcuts for Mac over the next year. I'm really looking forward to doing that. And, Thanks, everyone, for uh, participating in that. And uh, I've learned a ton about webinars in the last month, I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> today on More Power Users, uh, I want to give an update on Indoor Studios. My uh, studio build at my house, there's like stuff going on, and I have things I need to work out with you. Yeah, you keep sending me photos uh, of your backyard being slowly destroyed. Yeah, it's great. Well, you know, <laughs> destruction before construction, right? That's uh, right. Uh, yeah, you got to tear it down so you can rebuild it, you know? Yes, yes, yes. But uh, <laughs> I want to talk today about this Kickstarter because, you know, there's a couple things going on here. So you made a calendar, but on the calendar, you put a bunch of dates that are going to get sent out to thousands of people. Mm -hmm. So I, I eventually want to get to the mechanics of making a calendar. But before I do that, just like, how did you do the research to figure out that your dates were right and you know, what were your sources and just kind of walk us through that part of the project. Yeah, this is really the, in some ways, the hardest part of it. And it's where I'm this year kind of reaping the benefits of the work I did last year. So last year was the first one. It focused on hardware dates. Like when did this machine come out? When was this accessory put on sale? That sort of thing. Uh, you know, when, when did this machine get recalled for catching on fire? Those, those sorts of things. And there is actually one power book that had that problem back in the day. It's bad news. Yeah. I love that. Oh, I don't love it, but you know what I mean? Yeah. It's terrible, <laughs> but also hilarious. Look, it's nineties yeah. Apple. We can all make fun of nineties Apple. I read once, I don't know. Tell me if this is true. I read once that uh, in the nineties, they had a Mac where they put a speaker 
in the Mac, but they put the magnet and the speaker so close to the hard drive that it would randomly erase data from the hard drive. That's Is that prob- true? That's like, probably true. I've heard that like too. <laughs> if, you, if you turned up the volume enough, the magnet would engage and like start wiping your drive. I, that sounds I'm about sure. right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, yeah. the Apple Watch has the loud noise notification. It's really just the same thing if you think about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so last year when I set out, I had already been using DevonThink for a while. We've talked about this on the show before, but I have a massive collection of documents in DevonThink about computer history. So I have, you know, like every edition of Mac User Magazine, almost all of Macworld Magazine. I'm, I'm missing a few years of Macworld, but tons of web archives. And that that web archives, in particular of Apple's press, press releases, are sort of the first place I look for things. The problem is Apple's press releases on their current website only go back to the year 2000 or 2001. You can't get stuff from the 90s, let alone the 80s. But a lot of that is on the Internet Archive. And so last year when I was doing this, I went through, and it just just took like days and days and days of work, combing through the Internet Archive of these archive versions of really old versions of Apple's website, finding old uh, press releases from the 90s and importing them into DevonThink as web archive files. And so now I'm opening DevonThink now, but in my like Apple press release folder, there are just thousands and thousands of these documents, 3,041 uh Apple press releases that I've saved over the years. And I can search for anything that I I want to search for. So say that I'm, you know, looking for something about the, the EMAC G4, right? I can search Apple's press releases, but I can also search across all of these magazines, all of these other articles I've come across over the years. And DevonThink lets me see into all of those and search. Because one thing I do is I have DevonThink OCR, any PDFs that come in. So I have OCR copies of, you know, uh, 146 Mac user magazines and 125 Mac addict magazines. The, the tricky bit is of course, knowing like knowing what you don't know. And so I will go through, I did it this year as well and make a list of, things that I want to make sure I hit. And so I use things like Mac Tracker, which is this great free Mac app and iOS app that lets you look through like the historic products Apple has made and software and hardware and all sorts of stuff. And then going through and finding uh, the relevant dates either in DevonThink or out on the web. And so one thing that I do to make sure these dates are correct is that I have to have uh, two, ideally three, independent sources pointing to the same date. And that's where some of it gets hard when you go back, especially to the 80s, where not really like a lot of daily coverage of the stuff, right? It's, it's oh, yeah. I, I found, like, for instance, I have a bunch of like Apple II user group magazines I stumbled across years ago and put to Dev and think. Those are released monthly or like every six or eight weeks, and they only may get me whittled down to a certain month. And it just takes a lot of a lot of Googling and a lot of research in my own materials to to find that. Yeah. So like one source is a press release, but another source needs to be like a Macworld article or something like mm-hmm. that. Right. Wow, that that gets tedious, I bet. 
It does get tedious, and I don't take Wikipedia at face value. I always go to the sources, you know, listed at the bottom of the article. Uh, I don't take whatever's like in the sidebar for a certain software product or anything at face value. I want to go find the actual sources. And, you know, the thing is, like we've talked about, these calendars go up, you know, in Cupertino at Apple headquarters. So, like, you don't want to get it wrong because there's people in the building that worked on some of this stuff. They're going to know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a, a fun example of this is, a, 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 I think we've mentioned it on the show before, so forgive me, but I wrote this piece back in May about finding one of these dates. In fact, this date is in the calendar. And I found an ad in a magazine about when John Scully was speaking where at the, at the place where this Cernet software release was announced. And so like, okay, that's a secondary source that works. So you got to go deep, but yeah, I don't want to get anything wrong. And thankfully I've not heard, um, I know I'm inviting it on myself now. I haven't heard from anybody that anything is wrong in the first calendar. And I, I hope that's the case uh, this time as well. But part of the, process is I have somebody do independent fact checking. So our friend Kathy Campbell, I send her a list of all the dates that are in the calendar. And so we work actually out of a shared Apple note. So it's a really long Apple note that has a breakdown for each month. And then as I'm putting this together, I put every possible date I may use. And then I highlight the ones that actually made it into the calendar. Because sometimes it's like, okay, there's four things announced on a single day. I don't have physical room for four things. I kind of pick the two that strike me as the weirdest or, you know, the most unusual or or the funniest. Sometimes it's about humor. Like there's one day in the calendar. I forget what versions of iTunes it was, but it was like iTunes four, iTunes five or something was on the market like three weeks. And then they had another major release. And so like, that's in there. Yeah. But I sent her all of those dates and I send her links to my sources. And so she will go through and make sure that I actually have them on the right date and like what the the language that I'm using like makes sense to her cuz she's not an Apple historian, right? She so she's actually a really good sounding board for this because it's not her bread and butter. It's like, "Oh, yeah. well you say that it was announced this date, but this press release actually says it was released." Like, is there a difference there? Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. And so we go back and forth and clarify and clean up things a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of work and, mm-hmm. but you know, it pays off and, and it is interesting that, you know, Devin think is kind of the central tool for that, but then you make the list of dates in Apple notes. Yeah. It's really just so we can share them, uh, share them together easily. And then once you make your final decisions, is that an Apple notes or is there, there's a data go somewhere else? So the, the Apple note is sort of the, the record of all possible dates and dates that go in the calendar, uh, just so they're in a format where I don't have to send her like a giant PDF. Um, and also it's just easily scannable where like, I can just look through and say I could search like, okay, do I have, you know, do I have two dates about a certain thing or, you know, do I want to maybe downplay like I life and, and put something else in there so I can search and kind of easily see, you know, see what's going on with those things. But uh, the Apple Note is kind of the the record of what's actually in the big InDesign document. And then for the calendar itself, um, actually before we get the calendar, you always do photography, but this year it was software. 
So was it just screenshots or how did you do the photography this year? Yeah. So the photography for at least, and I'm not done shooting the photos, like still working on it, but, um, okay. Uh, a lot of the photos are devices running with software. So like, for instance, there's a photo of an e-mate, which like this was this weird, like Newton OS little clamshell laptop they made for a minute. And that is running Newton OS and like on the screen is like a document I typed up about, about the e-mate. And so, yeah. uh, you know, I've got to take the, the photo where that works. And a lot of these are actually multiple photos sort of merged. So like the screen looks good and everything, but yeah, there's also some photos that are just hardware. And then I sort of in the caption and in the dates, you know, they're more focused on, on software, but yeah, there's no screenshots in it in terms of just like you open a page and it's just like a screenshot of iTunes, right? It's always going to be in the context of hardware. Yeah. And and how are you merging that? Like when you, when you put a screenshot into a photo? Yeah. Well, well so far it's been basically just multiple exposures of the same image. And so like the email, I wanted the screen really like crisp and easy to see. So I, I shot photos where the photo was exposed for the screen. And then I shot okay. photos in HDR, the same setting, yeah. the same place exposed for the e-mate itself and sort of in Photoshop kind of merged those things. Yeah. Yeah. So HDR kind of stuff. Basically. Yeah. Basically it's ma- it's like HDR, how I learned in college, like kind of mainly yeah. doing it in, in, uh, in Photoshop. Yeah. Cool. And then you put all of that into the calendar, which, um, where do you lay out the calendar? Yeah, so it's in InDesign. And again, this year I'm able to build on what I made last year. Like last year I opened InDesign. I was like, how do you make a calendar? And so I actually, like we have a, a wall calendar hanging in our kitchen, which is kind of where this idea came from. And I yeah. took it off the wall and I brought it to my office. I was like, how, how does this work, right? And ultimately a calendar is just a table, right? But I had to kind of figure out like, how do I space it? You know, not all months have the same number of weeks. So I have to accommodate for that. Uh, but I was able to use kind of the bones of what I built last year to build this year's, which saved me a lot of time and honestly a lot of headache because it was that was a lot of work kind of figuring it out for the first time. But it's it's all in InDesign. And in InDesign, you can set, just like you can in iWork, you can set uh, text styles. And so I have text styles for everything. So like the name of the month is like a style. So I can highlight text and make it all look the same the dates all look the same because these textiles all match. And so that's a really nice way to make sure that everything's consistent throughout all, all the pages and to make sure that, Oh, this one, like I accidentally missed and left it bold. Like it's all very consistent because of those tools within InDesign, which is pretty cool. You know, can I just stop for a minute and say, Everybody that's not using textiles should use textiles. I mean, (laughs) it is so much easier. Like even like I use it in keynote, you know, people don't realize keynote has textiles in it. And so if you decide this font is a little too small or you want to make it, you know, a serif versus a sans serif or whatever, you just adjust the style and every slide gets fixed immediately. It's like, or pages, of course, and you know Microsoft Word or or the Adobe Suite. Anytime you can use those things, you should. And the other nice thing benefit you get in word processors is it often will make an auto-generated table of contents. I mean, there's just not a good reason not to use them. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know. I mean, I, we even use them in our Google Docs. Like 
Sometimes yeah. we have, when we have guests on the show, I mean, how often do we get the kind of like, this is the nicest looking Google document I've ever seen. It's because we use styles to make everything nice and consistent. Yeah, and because we use styles, we can also get a summary outline on the left side of our screen when we're recording and allows us to jump around. And like, I don't know, I, I used to get in that fight at the firm when I was at working at a law firm. My support staff would always resist me. They're like, oh, just make it bold. It's fine. I'm like, no, that's not fine. You know, <laughs> if you're if you're doing it for me, it's got textiles. And mm-hmm. I never understood why people, and I guess there's a bit of, um, of resistance because it's something to learn or something. I'm not really sure what the problem is. And then, or maybe because when people change them, they don't understand the concept of just changing the style. But it just takes very little training to understand how that works and really make a difference. Sorry. I, yeah. I had a little soapbox. I had to get on. No, off it's, it it's one I believe in. Believe me. And then you've got a publisher that now is the deliverable a PDF or what's the file that goes out? Yeah, so I send the printer, which is a local company to me here in Memphis, which I really like. I can, like last year, we went through a lot of paper samples. We can do it all in person, which is fantastic. Saves a lot of time, saves a lot of headache. And I can, uh, yeah, so I deliver them a high-quality PDF out of InDesign, complete with, like, crop marks. So there's, so, like, the photos, if you have one from last year, the photos are printed all the way to the edge of the paper. Well, it's actually an overprint, and then it's cut down to size. And so all of those lines and all those marks, I'm forgetting the official word for this, which is embarrassing, but um, that's all built into the PDF. So I send them the PDF and then we'll do, you know, a couple of test prints. Like last year, we actually changed the paper at the very last minute, like basically a week before publication, we changed the paper. And so like last minute I was out there like, yes, this looks good. Uh, this year, the paper is already decided, so hopefully no no last-minute <laughs> excursions out there because they're out in the suburbs. But it is uh, it is cool to have that done locally, and that means that when they're all printed, they show up in a truck or in a van with a big pallet of calendars and drop them off in my driveway. <laughs> and um, and the, the stickers, you know, I get printed online. The stickers are designed by our friend uh, Daniel. He makes the, if, he makes the app. GIF wrapped, which is like a GIF management application for your phone, which is fantastic. Um, and then, uh, you know, those just get shipped to me and I uh, put it all together here in the studio. So going from the first year to the second year, what was the biggest lesson you learned? The The biggest lesson is that I don't think many people cared about the, the four by six prints that were included last year. So I've taken those out this year. For a couple of reasons. One, like I said, I don't think some people really cared. And so there is going to be an option for backers to order them separately after the fact. But I think most people didn't care about them. They were very labor intensive to pack because there were, I guess, 14 four by six photos. We had them all sorted and then we had to go around and like pack them into sets. And I also pulled them out to keep the cost down. Because the the expense of printing the calendar went up significantly this year, just like everything else has. But yeah. uh, using uh, or getting rid of the prints let me keep the cost down from last year. In fact, the highest tier is actually a little bit less than it was last year, and so that's been that's been nice. And again, the the prints can be added after the fact. Uh, the other big thing I learned, and it came to me late last year, so I just did it as like a treat for people who bought the calendars 
is that we put together an ICS file, which you could load into Google Calendar or you know the Calendar app on your Mac or whatever, that included all day events for all the stuff in the calendar. So you can, like for instance, if I turn, I leave it turned off on mine, but uh, I can see that the original iBook and uh, Airport were demoed on stage in 1999 earlier this week. Uh, that that's the one where Phil Schiller jumped off the platform, right? Jumped off the platform. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> that really was like an idea that came pretty late in the game last year. This year, I knew I wanted to do it so I could include it kind of from the get go, and you can get it if you do the digital only package. So uh, that is something that was not in the original plan last year, but I actually have been thinking about it, and actually one of my uncles like because my dad was like telling his brothers about this and my uncle bill is actually a mac user and like he's like well could i get like a digital version of the calendar and it was like light bulb went off like yes that's a great idea you know you're not getting a pdf of it you're getting an actual digital calendar of all the dates that's kind of like a fun bonus thing and i think people enjoyed that because it was it was an unexpected treat last year yeah that's nice And honestly, the thing I love about it is I know that you have this journalism degree and you have a background in layout and we live in a world where it's really hard to make a living as a journalist and nobody does layout anymore, (laughs) but you found a way to do both and you combined (laughs) it in this project. And I, uh, I don't know. I just, I think that's really cool the way you've taken those skills to make this thing for the world. Thanks, man. It's also fun to make something physical. You know, you and I make podcasts and blog posts and videos for a living. And it's very rare that we get to make something we can actually put our hands on. And that was really fun. Like when I did work like in my high school and college newspaper, especially the college newspaper, because we we published four times a week. Like every yeah. class I went to, everyone had a copy of the thing I made on their desks like every day. Right. And most of them didn't know I had anything to do with it. But it was cool just to see the thing that you made out in the world. And I have absolutely loved it this year. I get a a little flurry of these the first of every month when people turn the page and see the new photo of the calendar hanging in someone's office or their kitchen or wherever. That's really cool. And so it's been fun to kind of get back into that world a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's honestly why I'm so interested all of a sudden in getting back into woodworking. You know, Mm -hmm. I used to do it avidly, but you know, between two careers and kids and everything. I kind of got out of it for a few years, but uh, we're in the process of cleaning so I can do it. But I, I want to do some stuff with my hands. I, it's just, you know, I want to yeah. create still, but I don't want to, uh, I want to do something physical, you know, cut a set of dovetails or something. Anyway, great job. Thank you. The last thing I want to touch on just quickly was fulfillment. Cause I got some questions about this last year. So I use Kickstarter, obviously for the campaign and then I use a service called Backerkit, which just integrates with Kickstarter and gives me lots of options. So you can purchase add-ons after the fact, like if you want more stickers or you want the prints or something. But Backerkit will integrate with a service called ShipStation, which lets me buy postage, you know, put in all the, if it's an international shipment, put in all the stuff I need for that, print the labels, And it's kind of like this web dashboard that handles all of those things. And that worked really well last year. So I'm going to do it again this year. Uh, I have done some things to make the fulfillment easier. Getting rid of the the prints for the most part is going to be a huge thing. 
Um, the sticker artwork is done early this year, so I've actually ordered a set of stickers already. And then when the campaign closes here in a few days, I'm going to order the what should be the rest of them and go ahead and get those all like put in little baggies and ready to go before the calendars even show up. And so I think by staging that a little bit better, it will be uh, a smoother process. Um, and I'm hopeful to get the calendars back from the printer a little earlier this year so I can start on this. Um, at least getting a bunch of stuff packed. And then hopefully my, my plan is after September ends, because we do Relay FM for St. Jude the month of September, to be able to hit it in the beginning of October and start getting things out. So um, everyone should have them in plenty of time for the new year. But I'm hopeful by learning about some of my mistakes last year because last year I had basically everything show up at the same time. I also didn't really know last year of like, how do I package these things? Like, how do I, like, I didn't really realize, oh, I need a little baggie to put all the stickers in or the stickers kind of get lost in the calendar and you have to like shake the calendar open to find the stickers. Like, well, that's not the experience I want. I want it to be really nice when you open this thing up to like, here are the stickers, here are the prints if you order them, here's the calendar. And so now I have all that knowledge and I have a bunch of, links to stuff I bought last year for the fulfillment that I can just repeat this year. So I think, uh, I think the experience will help me as well. You know, something else I would do in your shoes is when you finish this year, sit down and write a journal entry out about what went right, what went wrong. Yeah. Like when it's fresh in your mind, kind of a Mm -hmm. post action report and then go back and read it next year. If you assume you do it again, uh, to see what you learn from and, you know, I think that's a really good way to learn from these projects. But if you wait until the next time you start it up again, you'll have forgot all the stuff yep. that was actually useful to you. Yep. I did that. Uh, I did that last year and that's actually where like the photo, the idea of dropping the prints came from was like, that was the biggest hassle. And I had a question last year of like, do people really care about these? And from hearing from people in the year since, like, most people weren't super jazzed about them or, and so I was like, well, that's kind of two plus two equals four in terms of, of that part of it. This episode of the Mac power users is brought to you by text expander. Go to textexpandercom slash MPU to learn more and get 20% off of your first year. Man, do I love text expander. I'm in the middle of declaring war on email right now with this big transition in my life. I'm getting a lot more email than I used to, and I had to figure out how to manage it. And you know what's playing a pivotal role in this? Text Expander. With Text Expander, you can become the boss of your email. You can create form emails where it fills in the subject line and it's the tab key. You can do those fill in emails where it fills in the person's name for you. Uh, you have all sorts of great options. One of my favorite tricks in Text Expander is the search button. I've mapped it to uh, Control Option Command I. So if I'm in an email and I'm like, oh, I've written something like this before and saved a snippet, I just hold down those keys and I can search through all my thousands of snippets and get the right one in and type it very quickly. It's just so useful. And you can also use Text Expander with your team. They've got team communication so you can go faster. You can get the right message out to your customers and make sure everybody has exactly the right information. Uh, so here's how it works. You can store it so you can keep your company's most used emails, phrases, and messaging right in your Text Expander account. Then you can share it, getting your whole team access to the content the way they need it every day. And then expand it. You can deploy the content you need with just a few keystrokes on any device. It's really great. I am such a fan of Text Expander. 
It helps me both with my company, but also personally, and I recommend you check it out if you haven't. And best of all, Text Expander is available on Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. So get that 20% off your first year. What are you waiting for? Go to TextExpander.com slash MPU and check it out. It is big beta time here at MPU yeah. headquarters. <laughs> it's, uh, they're everywhere. I texted you a couple of weeks ago. I was like, hey, how's the watchOS beta? And you were like, uh, it's fine. Anyways, I'm running the watchOS beta now. <laughs> yeah, I gave you a very wishy-washy answer. I'm like, it's running fine, but your battery's going to die some days. Yeah. is that is, Did that come true for you? Yep. I've had a couple of days where like 6 p.m. for no real reason. It's like, oh, I'm in low power mode. It's like, come on, man. <laughs> but it's a beta. You know, the iOS, yeah. you know, my phone battery life's not very good either right now. But that's always part yep. of it this time of year. But uh, I want to check in to see how they're treating you. Yeah, well, on the battery issue, before we get into the, the content, I when I'm running betas, I always keep things plugged in and charging. On my desk, I have one of those Studio Neat um, docks that you told me about. I forget what it's called. The but Material it's Dock. A, yeah, the Material Dock. I got the one with two. It's got a thing for the Apple Watch and a thing for, you know, a puck for the phone. And during beta season, if I'm going to be working at my computer for any length of time, I'll take my watch off and just charge it during the day in my phone. And I don't really do that much during the rest of the year, but beta time, you do that, you know. And mm-hmm. and the relevance of this is we've also had the public beta released since, you know, we talked about it last. So I know a lot of listeners are trying it out as well. So I guess let's start out with, you know, what are we running? Yeah, I'm, I've got it all, baby. I've got Ventura on my laptop. Uh, my desktop obviously won't be on the beta <laughs> ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. I- iOS 16 on my phone. I have iPad OS 16 on my iPad Pro, which is a 2018 model, so I don't have Stage Manager on that. My, my iPad Mini is uh, not on the beta. And then, uh, yeah, watch OS 9. It's... Uh, yeah. It's a thing. Yeah, I'm 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 all the way down the rabbit hole too. I so I had a loner laptop. We talked about this last week, but I had to give it back to the guy. His wife needed it. But the um so I, I unwound that and put it back into Monterey. And then I um on my desktop I made a boot drive for Ventura. I guess I should talk that through a little bit. It's really not that difficult if you're curious about it. Um what you do is you get an external drive. And I recommend an SSD if you can. I have a two terabyte Samsung. I think it's a T5. It's one of those little tiny Mm -hmm. SSDs. They're very small. And I use it. I just kind of put extra data on it when I go out of town and stuff. And um, so I wiped it and formatted it APFS. And then you download the beta installer. Even the public beta installer will work for this. And when you're going through the install process, at some point, they show you your primary Macintosh HD or whatever it's called. And they say, hey, you want us to install this? But underneath it says view other drives or something to that effect. So you got to click that. If you don't, if you're not paying attention and you just click through, you install it on your main drive and you've just upgraded your main machine, you know, but but if if you click it, yeah, exactly. If you click it, then it'll give you that attached SSD. And I installed to that and I did not do a migration. I just did like a clean install. So I'm just kind of testing it and 
when people ask me questions about stuff. I did a video for the labs on uh, um, continuity camera, which I may want to talk about here in a minute. Uh, so, you know, I, it's fine as a test machine set up uh, from an external SSD. It's not quite as fast as it would be if it was internal, but it's fine. And now that I have a second Mac, I am currently, because I'm about to leave on vacation as we record this, I'm leaving it on Monterey because I may need to do some recording when I'm on vacation. But when I get back, I'll probably up, upgrade that one to the beta as well. Yeah, Ventura's been surprisingly pretty good. I did, I've had a couple of times where I've opened my laptop and clearly it's kernel panicked when it's asleep because it's like rebooting and I get the send your report to Apple. But in terms of app compatibility, the only things I've had issues with are, of course, the audio applications, which again, every year, it's how it goes. Audio Hijack doesn't run on betas. I have edited on it in Logic and Logic mostly works on Ventura. I've had some issues with like, performance and like logic will get kind of choppy and I have to restart it. I don't, I don't know what that's about, but all in all, like really, I think across the betas, if you're worried about, Oh, is my application going to break under it? I really haven't seen much of anything. It's very different than say Catalina, which of course ended 32 bit support. We talked about ad nauseum back in the day, but it's one of those sort of quieter years in terms of breakage, which is always welcome. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, the most apps that people use, I have no trouble. All my productivity apps work. All my utility apps work. The other apps I'm having trouble with are recorded relating apps. Like I've been, I tried to do some quick time recording of an iPhone, attached iPhone for a labs video. And it was just acting wonky in Ventura. And then um, uh, ScreenFlow, which is the app I used to screencast. Now it's doing capture okay now. But editing is just weird stuff is happening when I try to edit. And I, I, you know, I'm like, wait, why, why is this not working? And I realize, oh, I'm on a Ventura machine. If I take the file over to a Monterey machine, it works fine. Hmm. So uh, I'm sure they'll get that sorted out at some point. But that is a, um, that's a limitation for me. But I don't think a lot of people are, are using those kinds of apps. But you're right. I mean, for most stuff, like word processing and, uh, browsing and mail and all that other stuff, everything seems to just be working. And I've got some pretty exotic utilities on my Mac and they all seem to work as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really at a point now because these are annual releases that those big overturns, they're not, they're not every year anymore. It's really every three or four years where Apple's like, okay, we're ending support for X or we had some of this with Big Sur, I remember, because they, there was a UI change on the Mac. It's like, okay, some apps, like, the controls may be a little bit broken <laughs> until they they update for it, right? But this time around, it's, it's one of those quieter years. And even with things like Stage Manager on the iPad and the Mac, I feel like just about everything um, just works in them, you know? And I don't have yeah. a ton of Stage Manager on the iPad experience, really just as I've used other people's. But on the Mac, at least... You know, I haven't really hit an app that like freaks out in Stage Manager. Apple yeah. seems to have done a pretty good job at kind of if your app supports the things it's supposed to support in terms of multi-window and resizable windows and stuff, then this just comes along with it. Yeah, and we're going to do a whole show on Ventura when it releases. Yep. But because like Stage Manager right now, it seems like every major beta update, it changes in subtle but important ways. 
Like they're still kind of figuring it out. But I actually think there may be a place for stage manager for me. I mean, testing it, like having clusters of like communications app, productivity apps, planning apps. I've always done that with spaces, but I've been experimenting with stage manager and especially with this big screen, you know, it could work for me. I Mm -hmm. I don't know. We'll see. But, you know, I also, as we record this, it's not even clear what the final controls are going to be for it. Another feature of Ventura that I've been doing a lot of testing on is continuity camera. And I'll tell you, I am sold. It looks great. I, uh, I just did a video for the lab zoomers cause I bought one of those Opal cameras, you know, the one that Marquez Brownlee keeps talking about. Yeah. It's a great webcam, but it's $300. And, <laughs> it better be a good webcam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and, but it's got like a bokeh to it and great software, but I put that up next to the continuity camera. And honestly, I think the continuity camera looks just as good, if not better. I mean, if anything, the problem with the continuity camera is that it's it's such a good lens that like uh, there was too much detail in my face. It's like, I, I don't, you know, I don't have a face that looks good in that, in that resolution. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like, when all the movie stars were angry when they went to 4K movies and their or 4K video, they're like, "Ah, I'm going to look terrible." <laughs> you, know? you feel like yeah. that. that kind of it's kind of that that kind of problem. But and the other thing is, I'm not using a cable with it. I'm just you know hanging it on the top of my Mac uh, display. It doesn't get hot. There's no buttons to push. It's just the implementation is great. Um, the the point down bit doesn't work for me. I think it's the height of my monitor or whatever. I can't seem to get that aligned properly. But mm. the the you know the facing out part is great, and I feel like they really did it in a way that anybody will be able to use it. Of course, you lose use of your phone while it's being your camera, but you know, so be it. Yeah, and you can't. You can use an older iPhone, but a lot of the features are require a pretty new phone. So if you have like an iPhone seven laying around, not necessarily going to get you all the way where you want to go. Some of the stuff requires like a 10 R or later, or like even an 11 pro or later, but I mean, it makes sense, right? The iPhone is a really good camera. Why not use it as a webcam? And it is nice that it is. It's basically just, I mean, it's not even plug and play. It's just like bring your phone nearby and play (laughs) because it, uh, it does all the cool, cool uh auto pairing stuff yeah agreed i mean nice work what about on the uh the phone anything standing out for you yeah i do like the the lock screen stuff where you can bring the widgets and everything to it obviously that's early days and like i only have a couple of third-party widgets because i'm lucky enough to be on some betas but it'll be, I think, like regular widgets were. Like in the fall, people are just going to freak out putting widgets on their lock screen. And then we'll kind of figure out what we want. I've already changed mine several times. I do have some complaints about the way the feature is structured. Like in, in beta 3, which is the current beta as we record this, they've done a little bit to help this. But Apple really wants the lock screen and home screen to kind of be linked in a way. And you can still set separate ones, but it's not as easy as it should be. I think it should still be relatively easy to change the home screen and leave the lock screen alone. Again, you can do it, but you got to jump through some hoops. But the biggest thing for me is that you can't duplicate 
uh, a lock screen to like, okay, I really like the way this one is set up. Let me duplicate it and just change the photo out or just change one thing about it. And it means when you create a new one, you're basically starting from scratch every time. And that's a little frustrating. Yeah, I feel like they haven't sorted out the whole lock screen, home screen synchronization because it's inconsistent for me. Like, I like the idea. And one of the things I like about the lock screen is the combination with the focus modes. So you can make lock screens tied to focus modes. So you can change your focus by changing your lock screen, which mm-hmm. is, you know, one more trigger among many, you know, I, I like set my podcasting focus mode this morning before we start recording with my watch, but I could have done it in control center and the lock screen or yeah. through automation and all these ways. So I love that. Um, but I want a matching home screen for each lock screen. Like mm-hmm. I like the idea, like I I've made this kind of green lock screen. That's got kind of the MPU colors on it when I podcast and I want the home screen to reflect that too. So it's like a, a contextual computing thing. I look at my phone. I'm like, okay, I'm in podcasting mode, but I can't get it to stick consistently. So the whole thing feels broken right now. And I don't know. I've submitted a ticket. I don't think it's performing as they expect it to. And that's something that I think definitely needs to get fixed before they ship. All of that just feels a little rough, but again, it's early and like, it's such a big change. Um, yeah. One thing that that is really cool, and it it reminds me, uh, there's so much of this that reminds me of the watch face system. Like even some of the the mechanisms and gestures are the same, yeah. but they've put together a gallery of like select lock screen colors and a couple of examples. But it will also go through your photo library. And mine took several days, and then it finally kind of popped up of like, here are a bunch of photos we think would look good on a lock yeah. screen. So they're kind of doing their thing of like suggesting things that look good, but. I expect some more refinement here before it's all over. Yeah. And I think we're going to get it. And I think the third party integration is going to be great. Like someone like me is going to love having an OmniFocus widget in the lock screen and, you know, whatever David Smith comes up with. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like right now it's not, the widgets aren't there yet. And I also don't like the, the way they arrange themselves automatically. I think that we should be able to set the arrangement and, uh, uh, yeah, I don't. Th- I don't think we're going to get that because nope. I feel like that's probably not on the list between now and launch. But um, so there's things I don't like about it. I really like uh, switching topics. I really like focus mode. The changes they've made to focus mode are very powerful. I'll talk about this more when they release it to the public and everybody can use it. But yeah, focus modes have got even better. Uh, and I know that you are suddenly very interested in the reminders app. Yeah. So. For years, there's been a feature missing from reminders that has really kind of broken the way that I work. And that's that I, I want I want the app to show me on the badge how many tasks are overdue or due today. And like OmniFocus, things, Todoist, Remember the Milk, like any task manager, good tasks, any task manager I've ever used has had this feature. And the way it's worked in reminders is that it's been only able to badge overdue tasks. And so if a task due date or time passed by and the task wasn't marked as complete. And last year in the beta cycle, the feature that I wanted was there briefly and then it got removed. Uh, This year I was at WBDC. I was once again sort of like thinking about this and I wrote a blog post about it 
and I used a super clickbaity title. Apple could get me to switch to reminders with this one weird trick. And I filed feedback and I got what I wanted. In beta three, they added this toggle where you can tell reminders the badge should match overdue and due today tasks. Actually, what the way they did it is it matches the today smart list, which is perfect. And so the last couple of weeks, I was like, well, I'm going to give this a shot because Reminders has a lot of really cool features because it's integrated with the system. So you can use Siri and say, remind me of this. And if you're looking at a text message or whatever, it will have a link to that message. Uh, There's also a really cool feature. You can, of course, do location aware reminders and that sort of thing. But you can say, next time I'm messaging with David, Remind me of this. And so say that, you know, I needed to ask you about something about your studio expansion, but it's not important right now. I don't want to bug you about it. But next time we're just chatting, I'd like to be reminded, hey, you were going to ask David about this. That feature is sweet. And so I've spent the last couple of weeks, I spent about two hours one afternoon picking up my entire task list from Todoist and rebuilding it in reminders. And so far, it's okay. The UI and reminders, especially on the Mac, is very click heavy. You can, there's some smart text entry, you know, to do this, you can basically type everything in a sentence and it figures out where it needs to go. There's some of that. And there are a couple of third party apps, uh, one on the Mac and one on iOS that basically do this for you. But you're doing a lot of clicking in reminders. Um, I also don't love that lists seem to be a lower priority to Apple than tags. And so if you're in the today view and you want to move a task from one list to another, you can only do it with drag and drop on the Mac because the inspector pane lacks, for some reason, uh, a list selector, even though it is there in the inspector on iOS and iPadOS. And I've opened a feedback about that, so hopefully they listen. But um, the Mac app at least feels a little older than the iOS app, and I wouldn't mind the Mac app being a little bit fresher. But it syncs really well. It's cool to having the system stuff. You know, um, I'm going to give it a shot over the summer and, and see how it goes. I really like reminders. I had started doing kind of a deep dive on it for the Max Barkey Labs, and then Apple announced all these changes, and I shelved it. I'm going to do it again after it released, after this releases, because I think it's so much better. But I feel like the, and I'm still an OmniFocus user. I've been trying to actually replace it i've been looking at all these other apps saying well is this better is this something i did a big experiment in obsidian and for what i do OmniFocus is still awesome i mean i mean sal segoyan i should talk about this later in the show but he just wrote an entire voice control system for OmniFocus. you can control the entire app now with your voice it's crazy but that being said if you don't want to go that far I feel like Reminders has gone from a a beginning app to an intermediate app. Mm -hmm. And it's done a very good job. And it does have certain benefits that nobody else has because it's got, you know, that integration. So, you know, with the operating system that nobody else has. I I totally predict this is going to be successful for you and you're going to end up being happy with it because, you know, why not? It makes it so much easier when you use the, you know, the system app. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think that they've done a, a good job in like bringing those other features on. Like I'm not a big tag person, but Reminders has some great tag support now. And you can have uh, you can have your 
smart lists, like pick up tags. And so like, I did think about like, well, uh, tags are one of the things that are picked up as like the uh, text interpretation system. And so I did think, cause like, well, instead of lists, like I could have a bunch of smart lists and just use tags. And like, I'm not a tag person, but maybe I adopt it for this. So I think there'll still be some change. And of course there's still going to be changes throughout the betas, hopefully. But, uh, this is by, I mean, I've been running it for, I think three weeks at this point. This is by far the longest I've ever lasted. And, um, I would like to move to it. Like I like the idea of being in the sort of the stock app because it has all those integrations. They just need to continue to, to improve it because, you know, task managers, and we've talked about this before, they're they are apps that sort of live and die by their preferences because everyone wants things a little bit different like to omnifocus credit you can customize almost everything about it right you can cut you can do you can do things um with perspectives like if you don't get the view you want you can just build your own you can use all these different uh input methods and, and metadata around your task to build exactly what you need and Todoist and some others, good tasks, like they kind of do that through various means. And Reminders has to adopt more of that stuff because no two people want it exactly the same way. I mean, look at my whole thing, right? Yeah. My whole thing was about this one very specific feature, and now they have it, it suddenly clicks for me. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's a lot more to cover with these releases, and we will when they go out. But I think in general, the betas are in pretty good shape, and I'm having a good time this year. I think so too. Uh, it feels like a pretty, a pretty solid year. And, you know, I think we still run our normal caveats of like, I wouldn't put it on a production machine, make sure you have backups on and on and on, but it's kind of the smoothest summer I've had in a couple of years, I think. Yeah. Maybe we should just say that when you're, you know what, put it on your production machine, put it on the thing that you earn <laughs> no. money on. And if there's any problem, send your email to Steven. No, well, I don't know. <laughs> no. this episode of mac power users is made possible by our good friends at memberful memberful is the easiest way to sell memberships to an audience used by the biggest creators on the web generate sustainable recurring income while diversifying your revenue stream with memberful here at relay fm the membership program is powered by memberful it makes it super easy to generate extra revenue for our host while delivering really cool bonus content to our members. For us, this includes access to a Discord, a monthly newsletter that we actually send through Memberful. They have this new post feature. Those newsletters also end up on a blog that you can log into as a member. And then, of course, the ad-free longer episodes of a bunch of our shows. And with Memberful, we can do all of that in one place. I'm not going around building something from a bunch of different components. And I really appreciate that as a business owner. Memberful makes it easy to diversify our income with everything we need for a membership program, including custom branding, gift subscriptions, Apple Pay support, free trials, private podcasts, and ton more. And they leave us in full control and ownership of everything that relates to the audience, brand, and membership. If you're a content creator, Memberful can help you monetize your passion. Get started for free at memberful.com slash MPU. There's no credit card required. That's memberful.com slash MPU, or check out the link in the show notes. It could be the start of something really exciting for your creative projects. Our thanks to Memberful for their support of the show and Relay FM. 
so you and I are both Alfred users. Since the last time we did a feedback show, Alfred has released a major new update. Alfred 5 is out. Have you got it installed? Yeah, uh, I've been running it. It was announced as a beta about a month ago, and I didn't jump on it then, but I've I put it on basically the day it was announced that it was uh, that it was out. There's this long post over on the Alfred site. We have it in the show notes outlining everything new in Alfred five. And in this version, most of the focus seems to be around uh, workflows and automation. And so, so workflows is kind of the term that Alfred uses uh, to, to build. I mean, you're, you can build almost anything. So you can build like, Hey, I want to run these sorts of commands from within Alfred. So it could be as simple as, for instance, I have one as goofy as it is to search a couple of different GIF websites. Cause some, like sometimes I want a GIF to send to a friend or to put in a tweet. And I have a workflow set up that take the text that I enter, make it the search parameter and these URLs open these URLs and new tabs. Um, and you can yeah. go up from there to really complicated things. And that whole engine and mechanism got a big overhaul this time. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that it got democratized. Um, historically, I mean, they've had workflows in Alfred now for at least one version. I think it started with version three and now we're in five, but uh, it's always been difficult to create these workflows because a lot of it was like real scripting, you know, like JavaScript or whatever you were doing to make it work. And if you looked at the the more advanced workflows, and there were a bunch of popular ones we would all download, um, the person that put that together really understood uh, programming at a level that a, a casual or even a power user would not understand. And what they've done now is they've turned it into more of a shortcut slash keyboard maestro sort of drag and drop. And they have all of these actions now available. And it's awesome. You know, I mean, like you can really put together some interesting workflows now because it's all there, you know, right for you. Uh, like, um, whether you want to collect data from the user, whether you want to perform actions on that data, whether you want to deal with file operations, um, and you can still put, you know, like the catch-alls, the workflow steps that do insert code if you want. And I, what I predict is a lot of people that couldn't make their own workflows before will be able to do so now. Yeah, it's it's way simpler to bring in kind of pre-built sections and so now on the right hand side of the workflow editor you have it's very similar like if you use keyboard maestro or other automation tools the language is very similar where you have uh, triggers inputs actions and you can build them and what's really cool about the workflow editor and alfred has been this way for a while it's kind of like audio hijack is where you kind of drag and drop these blocks and you can kind of control the flow of the workflow but now you have a really easy way to use these, these pre-built sections, and you can even save your own. And so if you have a block or two that you want to use in multiple workflows, you can save that as what Alfred calls a prefab and like use that block of automation across multiple workflows as you build them out in the future. It's all just much easier to do. I mean, if I look through the ones I've done, almost all of them dump out to like a like a bash script <laughs> to, to run what I'm yeah. going to do just in the command line. And yeah. there's still going to be some of that probably depending on what you want to do. But 
I think for a lot of people, they're going to be able to uh, to manage this in a much more sort of drag and drop kind of friendly way. Okay, so just to give you an example, so every automation starts with a trigger. If you've watched any of my field guides, you've heard the speech that there's a trigger and then there's an action. That's what makes an automation. The trigger is what triggers it. So new triggers that are available with drag and drop is a, pressing a hotkey, pushing a button on the Alfred remote app, using a text snippet, uh, external triggers from Apple Script, so you can send them in from the, the Apple Script system. If you perform an action on a file, if you do a universal action, if you change a contact, it, you know they've got all these ways now that you can trigger actions. And then from that, you can collect inputs, like you can type something in the keyboard or get a filter to a file or a list. And then the actions that are available, once it's triggered, you can open files, launch apps, reveal files in Founder, browse the terminal, browse in Alfred, perform actions in Alfred, which, you know, Alfred has a ton of actions available. Uh, do a web search, open a URL, run a script, you know, it, it just goes on and on. And there is a terminal command, Stephen. So don't even have to do it a bash script. You can go straight to the terminal now. Um, automations uh, is you can run shortcuts now as part of a workflow automation. Which and is really cool. <laughs> So just as an aside, Rose and I released episode 106 of the automators recently, automation interoperation. That was Rose's word, by the way. That's good. And I thought it was, I thought it was very British. So I'm like, okay, we got to use that. But, but what I was going to say is automation integration, because on the Mac, we, we are going through something right now where keyboard maestro can do almost anything with shortcuts and then shortcuts can do almost anything with keyboard maestro and hazel can run shortcuts and now alfred can run shortcuts it's like it is crazy what is going on now because we've got a superset of automation tools this is you know we talk about this being the golden age for for mac hardware this is a golden age for mac automation because you can mix and slice and dice all these automation tools together choose your platform of choice, but still use the the cool parts of the other ones. I mean, it is awesome what's going on right now, but this is just one more example of that, you know, but I'm going to get on a soapbox again if I keep talking about this, but it is <laughs> it is great. If, if you like shortcuts, but you also like Keyboard Maestro, you can combine them now to do some really uh, remarkable automation. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes we get questions about what tools should I use? Like, there's overlap between a bunch of these utilities. And uh, I think that Alfred now, it kind of comes into that conversation in a bigger way because of these yeah. these new automation tools and workflow. And so um, I think we will circle back to Alfred 5 at some point in the future, but I just kind of wanted to put a pin in it for now of if you were using automation in, in Alfred before, or if you already use Alfred as your app launcher, and you're looking to do uh, a bit more, then uh, it's uh, it's pretty sweet. Yeah, the uh, the upgrade is a no brainer. Just really curious, Stephen, what um, Alfred workflows are you currently running? I've got one that is basically just a Google search with Google suggestions, uh, which is awesome. I've got an old one that all it does is it runs, it lets you run any shortcut. So you just type the keyword and then you can arrow down and just like pick a, <laughs> pick a shortcut. Um, is, is that the one from Victor? Uh, this is from uh, someone named Lucas. Okay. There's a bunch of different ones. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, this one thing cool about Afro too. There's a really big community of people building stuff for it. Um, I've got one yeah. called Mega GIF, which I described a second ago, which just searches some GIF websites. I just want to tell the listeners, um, as Stephen's friend, Stephen loves GIFs. I just I see them so often from you. <laughs> I do what I can. You're a gift guy. I like you sharing that with the world. Yeah. Thank you. I'm young and hip. It's cool. There you go. There you go. Of course you are. <laughs> Although I'm not sure it's hip to say hip anymore, but there you that's go. That's true. Mm. Uh, I've got one, somebody named Carl Smith that is a time zone viewer and like management tool. Yep. I do that one too. Comes in it clutch. Always shows me Memphis. Shows me Memphis. Awesome. And then I've got a couple that I built myself, again, basically just using Bash Scripts to search the Internet Archive in different ways. So I have one where I can give the Internet Archive a keyword, and it will just search all of their archives. And then one I use a lot is I can pass it a URL. So like if I'm visiting like maxsparky.com and I want to see what the Wayback Machine has for MaxSparky, I can start this workflow, paste in the URL, and then it will load automatically that search within the internet archive for that URL. I use that one a ton for work stuff. Yeah. Nice. I use a, several of those and a couple more that I use. Um, I'm using an awesome OmniFocus one uh, by Red Lewis that lets me search and jump into anywhere in my OmniFocus database. It's using dot commands like dot F is dot folder dot P is dot project. So I can just type dot F space max sparky and it goes to my max sparky folder just really really powerful to be able to do that from alfred i'm always kind of working on some test ones that i'm building uh i took the the native folder search one and i, I did a video for this in the max sparky labs too but i took the native folder search and i customized it for different folders like a lot of times i wanted to get to just folders like when i have a client list i made one that if i just type um cl period then it only searches for folders in my client folder and then I could get to those very quickly. Uh, one password, it's got a plug-in. And in fact, they've got a new one. Uh, emoji Taco, I was playing with, but then I started using Rocket for yeah. uh, Emoji. So I that one went away. Uh, and then just for fun, I put the Magic 8-Ball in there, <laughs> you know, just to see it, you know. That's good. Because you can do a Magic 8-Ball. And, the, uh, and there's an Obsidian one that's very powerful too. But yeah. I'm going to be working on more of these now that they've made it more uh, human friendly for me to build them. Yeah. GW wrote in asking about password managers and built-in password managers. Um, obviously, 1Password has been a sponsor of the Mac Power Users forever, but we also use the built-in stuff. And I thought, let's talk through this. Yeah, yeah. So obviously... Apple has its own password manager now. It's in macOS, iOS, and iPadOS. It's in settings or system preferences. It's also in the preferences pane for Safari itself, which is kind of like where it started life a long time ago. Yeah. Um, I would still like to see this be a freestanding application, but I, I guess I kind of understand why it's in settings. But it syncs with iCloud if you have that turned on. It supports two-factor authentication, and it supports a notes field, which is surprisingly handy sometimes if you have a login. Like, for instance, if you have a login that requires a password and a PIN to enter, then not a two-factor, but like just a regular PIN uh, code, store that in there, other notes. 
and that all syncs to all of your devices. It also supports pass keys, which we haven't talked about because it's extremely difficult to explain, but it's basically a concept that would replace passwords one day using your device itself as authentication for who you are. Yeah. And Apple is a big proponent of that. And it's just also newly announced. I mean, this is a thing that comes with Ventura and the way pass keys need to work is actually people out on the internet need to adopt them, which hasn't mm-hmm. happened yet because it's not out yet. But uh, we'll be covering this more as it becomes something you can actually use. But I I love that Apple is doing this. I think it's great. And so many people for so long used the same one or two passwords on all websites because they just didn't know better and weren't willing to like go deeper I mean, we've been beating the drum on this forever, not only in relation to Mac, uh, to one password ads, but just on the show in general, even before one password was a sponsor, the importance of having strong and unique passwords for each website. And Apple has now made this super easy for anyone to do for website logins. So I love that they're doing it. I think it's a great introductory feature. There are limits to it. You know, I mean, it really only is for web logins, but at the same time, this is getting a lot of people to be way more secure with passwords that wouldn't otherwise. Yeah, it is. And because it's just built into Safari and places like the iOS keyboard, it's not a burdensome thing to take on. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to really work outside of Safari, right? So it depends. So on, on the Mac, it only works in Safari. Apple has Chrome and edge extensions for windows and some of apple's documentation says this extension works on the mac but it doesn't and so i don't know what the deal is with that if it's broken or the documentation is wrong probably the latter but if you use chrome on the mac not you're not using icloud password stuff at least right now which is a real bummer And, and it feels if that's on purpose that feels really petty and they should they should get over that and then Chrome has its own password manager too. And I have very little experience with this because I'm not a, a Chrome user. I mean, I, I think it uses too many system resources. I get that it's got great plugins and a bunch of extra things that we don't get with Safari, but I've kind of made my bed there. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm also just a little less confident in Google to hold my passwords than Apple. And I don't have a basis for that. So, you know call me a fanboy or whatever, but <laughs> it seems like the focus on privacy at Apple makes me more comfortable letting them manage and create passwords for me. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's fair. Uh, yeah. The Chrome password manager, it just works within Chrome. So there's no offline support. Uh, there's no exporting a password to share it. There's no two factor authentication support. And like, there is an argument to be had that you're, two-factor authentication and your and password your manager. yeah your password should be like separate places mine are all in one password i don't worry that much about it but chrome's built-in thing doesn't have 2fa support so so yeah i mean if you're all in on chrome and like and it does work cross-platform anywhere chrome is this would work and i think a lot of people do use it because chrome is the most popular browser on the planet but uh it's not something that, that i use yeah, and then because and not because they're a sponsor, but because I I pay every year for one password. And I guess I should explain most of our sponsors, I don't take 
like free subscriptions from it. I pay for OmniFocus. Nope. I pay for One Password. I pay for these apps because same. I use them. I feel like there's part of it. Like some of these people I know, right? But I feel like it's not being fair to them. I'm not. I'm not getting these apps to evaluate them. Sometimes I do get a free license to something to evaluate it. But if I incorporate it into my workflow, I become a pay member. I just paid my fifty bucks to to One Password a few months ago. But either way, so I, I pay for these apps, and the, the reason is it just does so much more. It's not because they sponsor the show. Frankly, if they cancel their sponsorship, they're not going to stop using it. One Password has secure notes, which I love. I mean, just recently I did an audit of all my medical stuff and I just wanted to keep it in one password. So it's there. I, I think I did an ad spot on it a few weeks ago for him, but th- that is a very useful tool for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also like that it stores more kinds of data, like software licenses. I just had to, because I got this new laptop, I'm installing all the rogue amoeba stuff. Well, I've got all these rogue amoeba licenses and you know, those built-in solutions don't do that. Um, so this solves that problem. And then one password, you know, there's just a bunch of benefits that come from one password and I'm not saying just one password. There are other password managers out there. Um, was it LastPass is another one a lot of mm-hmm. people use. Um, and we've talked about that on the show too before, but, um, the, the fact that there's a company where everybody there is like, okay, how can we make a product that makes it easier and better? Well, like one of the features one password has is watchtower, which is, a, a free service that comes with your account where they monitor the websites you have passwords for. And then when you go to one password, it says, Oh, you're at site XYZ.com. They got hacked, you know, two months ago. And we think you should really change your password or cancel your account because right now, whatever password you had there is now public. And that is a great service. And I love it, you know, and then uh, multiple vaults, you know, so I can have a vault for work and home. I, I guess I, I can go on and on, but sharing is another one. Like we, because we're in the family plan, we share passwords. There's a lot of good reasons to get back to GW's question, um, to use the, the built-in stuff. And if you're not going to be willing to buy something, please use the built-in stuff. But if you want to take it to the next level, there are great solutions out there too, that, that do more. This episode of the Mac power users is brought to you by indeed. Start hiring now and only pay for quality applications matching the sponsored job post. Just go to indeed.com slash MPU. So here's a quick puzzle for you. What would you do if your business had to hire great people fast? Here's a hint. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, You need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. One of the things that's really cool about Indeed is how they just know how to make hiring pain-free. Like how Indeed puts you in control of what you pay. You set your must-have job requirements and only pay for the applications that meet them. There's a transparent flat fee per application, and you can pause your job posting whenever you want. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. 
Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest in 2019. So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast, and Indeed's doing something no other job site has done. Now with Indeed, businesses only pay for quality applications matching the sponsored job description. Visit Indeed.com slash MPU to start hiring now. That's Indeed.com slash MPU. Go there now and check it out at INDEED.com slash MPU. Terms and conditions do apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And our thanks to Indeed for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. We had a, a an email from listener Jen asking us to talk through our smart home setups. You want to do that? Constantly evolving? Is that yeah. the answer? Yeah. So uh, what do you have going on? I am... Uh, you know, Lutron switches, I've talked about them on this show now for years and I love them. I mean, I, I started slowly buying them cause it was like when I bought them, it was around a hundred bucks to get started. And the switches without the base station were around 60 or 70. And I think they're actually less expensive now, but, uh, so I would like every couple months just buy another one, but now the whole house is wired to these Lutron switches. And, you know, we had the problem I, I had was I was using light bulbs, like smart light bulbs. But then if somebody turns off the switch, smart light bulb doesn't work, you know, or if they throw the switch and the light bulb doesn't turn on, then they get really mad at me and I don't want my, my wife mad at me. So the Lutron switches solved all the problems because the they act as independent switches, but they also are always connected to automation. So my lighting situation is very settled and very good. I've got it running all over the house. I've created all these different scenes. So no matter what I'm doing, I can set the lights very easily. And honestly, this is one of the best uses for HomePods and Siri, you know, telling it to turn the lights off in a room. It does that Mm -hmm. without fail. And uh, I I like that. Um, One bit of lighting I did was I got a set of uh, strip lights, uh, uh, home kit uh, friendly strip lights, and I put them along the edge banding of my uh, of my desktop of my work desk, and at night I kind of like to turn that on, and it's like backlighting my desk. That's kind of a cool lighting thing I've done. So I guess that's my story on lighting. You want to? What are you doing with lighting? Yeah, my my lighting is pretty simple. At some point, I'd like to go through my house and do Lutron switches. I just haven't haven't done it. Uh, it is so worth it. I mean, really, you that's the, I think that's the best home kit thing you can do today yeah. is, is change your switches. Yeah, I need to find some time where I could I could take the house apart and do that and do that. We have several lamps on these iHome control smart plugs. I've had them a long time that work with the Amazon system and home kit because for a long time I had the Amazon system in the house and, and switched all to home kit a couple of years ago but they plug into the wall then you plug the light into them so we have lamps multiple lamps at the house plugged into these and i have like if the christmas tree's up i have the christmas tree plugged into these the thing about these that i don't really love and like if i didn't have them i wouldn't necessarily recommend them maybe find like the, i think the miros ones are probably a little bit better uh for this use because there have been times where they they are unresponsive because the iHome app is not connecting the way it's supposed to. And so 
they they show up in HomeKit and they work in HomeKit, but then you also have the iHome app kind of in the middle, which I don't really love. But again, I've had them a long time, so I haven't replaced them. Uh, and I have some automated scenes set up for like, okay, like an hour before sunset, turn these lamps on and turn them off at midnight or whatever. I don't remember who it was that told me. I think it might have been Bob Spivak, who was an, a guest on the show a while ago, who's a home automation expert, who said that the Lutron has their own spectrum, their own mm-hmm. signal spectrum. But whatever it is, the Lutrons, that's the other thing, is they just always work. I mean, I never have like an interference problem, even with the number that I'm running in the house. Man, I sound like I'm in the bag for Lutron, don't I? <laughs> I mean, I know they make good stuff. I know people really like them. Yeah. Now, camera situation for me, I've been slowly building up my collection of Eufy, E-U-F-Y cameras. I believe that company is a subsidiary or related company to Anchor, um, but I don't quote me on that. But uh, they're they're fairly inexpensive cameras. The thing I like about them is that they have local storage, like the, the doorbell cam and the outdoor cameras. They have SD cards built into them that are storing uh, the camera data, so I don't have to pay for a cloud service. So often, these cameras come with a cloud service, and then I don't really trust the cloud services, right? And then Apple has now got their own way. It's HomeKit. What do they call it? HomeKit video or HomeKit recording? HomeKit secure video. Secure video. I much more trust Apple than that. And most of my Eufy cameras connect right to that. So they show up in the Home app. And they're recording to Apple's HomeKit secure video, so I don't have to worry about it. And I've been pretty happy with them. The I had one on the front of the garage. Um, there, there's a thing going around in Southern California. I don't know if it's it's true in the whole country, but people are stealing the catalytic converters off Priuses because apparently they're they're quite valuable. And my daughter has a Prius, so I, I have a camera that points right down at her car at night. And um, the that one I've had like three years and. I put a solar charger. Eufy sells a solar charger, but the battery just gave up the ghost. You know, it's just like you've recharged it for three years, even with the solar thing attached. It can't seem to to hold on. And, but I don't really blame them. I think three years is about what you would expect out of a little tiny camera like that. So I just bought a new one. That was my sole purchase on, was it Amazon Day or whatever they call it? You know, what do they call that thing? Uh, Amazon uh, Prime Day. It was on Prime Day. Eufy had a good sale, so I bought a new one and replaced that one. But yeah, in general, I'm I'm pretty happy with the Eufy cameras. I don't, I'm not sure that they're the best quality cameras, but I get a good enough picture for the price, and it saves to Apple HomeKit Secure Video. Okay. I, I totally forgot that I have a studio, so I'm going to back up to lighting for a second. <laughs> um, okay. I was like, yeah, talking about the house. Uh, so in the studio, I have a bunch of few lights on display cases, bookcases, uh, a couple of standalone Hue lights. And that's all through the Hue app. And then, of course, in HomeKit as well. And then I also have several of these Elgato key lights. I have one here on uh, my main desk. And then I've got a couple on my overhead desk where the PC is. And those I control via uh, stream decks, actually, at, at each computer. But uh, in terms of cameras, I was in the Nest ecosystem for a really long time. And then they sort of revamped the camera lineup and their app. And the app at the time was really pretty bad. And I needed to purchase a couple more cameras to like cover the studio, the outside and the inside. Yeah. 
And so about a year ago, I guess, I actually switched over to Ring for that stuff. And it's kind of the antithesis of what you're, do- you're doing. It is all cloud-based. Um, and Ring has, some, uh, has had some problematic policies in the past. I think most of those are behind them. And you can turn on end-to-end encryption on everything now. So I have that on. And I, I like the control that it gives me. Uh, and I like that through Homebridge, uh, which is software you can run on like a Raspberry Pi. I run it on a Mac Mini. You can bring non-HomeKit accessories into your HomeKit world. And so I run a plugin for that that brings control of my cameras and the because I have the ring alarm on my studio like, with like a motion sensor and a bunch of other stuff uh, all into HomeKit. So I can set. Uh, I can set scenes like if I leave, hey, make sure all the ring cameras are set in away mode, which means I get a notification if they see a person. I don't want those notifications when we're home, but when we're gone, I'd like to know if someone's in my backyard. And that uh, yeah. that bringing that into HomeKit has been pretty sweet. Yeah, I, I got some of those Eufy flood cams, you mm-hmm. know, where it's like two LED floodlights with a camera attached to it. Yeah, I've got two ring cameras like that. And they're really nice. And like the beauty of it is, you know, I, I think I told you already about Ahsoka, my dog, and Moriarty, the squirrel, their running battle. I think I mentioned this on the show already, but there's a squirrel that my dog wants to kill. And the um those cameras get some great footage of various squabbles between those two. <laughs> but the um but the thing I don't like about them is they record to the SD card they do not connect to Apple secure video. So mm. I don't get that saved automatically to my Apple cloud, but I can see it in the app. So I guess if somebody wanted to break into my house and they ripped all those things off the side of the house and took them with them, you know, I don't know, whatever, but the, um, so they're not, not ideal in that way, but I, I do like that. They, they really light the yard up and, and, um, and it, at least it's a camera running. I mean, honestly, anybody who comes to my house to rip it off, they're going to see so many cameras walking to the front door, or the back door. I would, I would hope that that would be alone enough to discourage them. Yeah. That's part of the game. I think is, yeah. uh, is that sort of thing. I mean, I've got one on my, it looks out my front porch and you know, if someone yeah. comes in my yard, they're going to, they're going to see it and they're going to know they're, they're on camera. But the whole idea of the studio is for me, like I, we're going to talk about it today in the after show, but I, I am giddy with the idea of automation in a room that is my room, right? The studio is going to be my room. So motion sensors, crazy lighting, all that stuff. I'm going like all in on that. That's going to be the room where people walk in and don't understand what's going on. And I can't wait. Yeah. That's going to be pretty sweet. Um, Yeah. uh, I feel like some of that stuff is like almost there. You know, like I, I had an issue with HomeKit secure video where the notifications were out of control. Like anytime a leaf came by, I thought it was a person. <laughs> I think that's all better. Yeah. Like Apple has improved this as, as they've gone on, as have all these other companies. Yeah. Something else I've done recently is I've gone deep on the Acara products. And this is another one where you have to buy a separate hub. But the products themselves are very inexpensive in comparison to other products on the market. And in particular, you know, I had a friend who went on vacation and they had like a toilet leak and then they came home and like their house was wrecked, you know? Yeah. And 
And that got me thinking, well, I, I bet I could, you know, prevent that with automation. And the Acara has these leak sensors that are really good and they're not that much money. The, um, and once you get the hub, then you just start buying them. So I now have them under the refrigerator, under the sink, by the dishwasher and by the uh, clothes washer, you know, so I've got them in various pieces and I've got them also in the bathrooms upstairs. So I've just got a really nice system now and they absolutely work. Cause I put one in by the fridge and I didn't put it like securely enough behind and the dog got it and my alarm went off. I'm like, Oh no, the fridge is leaking. And it was actually just the dog licking and you mm-hmm. know chewing on it. But so it, they, they're really a, a good solution. If you don't have a le- uh, a water leak solution and, I would recommend looking at these Acara products. And then they have a bunch of other ones. They have motion sensors too that are really cheap. Uh, Rosemary Orchard, and we've talked about this on the Automators podcast, she had an issue where she would work, but she'd be so still that the lights would go off because she's got all these automations. And her solution I thought was pretty smart. She put an Acara motion sensor under her chair. So just, you know, the motion of rocking in your chair or whatever keeps it going so it knows there's a human in the room. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I have Ring makes a a water sensor and I have it in the pan for my hot water heater. But it is so because the. uh, Something about it, like it drops off the ring network sometimes, and maybe this with putting the bridge like in the network closet, which is basically like. 30 feet from the hot water heater, maybe that would be a, a better solution. And this stuff is cheap. It's like 18 bucks on Amazon right now. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, I'm going to order another one because I didn't think of the water heater. Now it's like, now I need another one. And then, yeah, man, those the things are time bombs. <laughs> just, 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 just get a Sharpie and just write on it what your, you know, where it goes. Mm-hmm. And then you just set it on the floor behind it and you're good. And, um, and I, uh, my, at one point, my daughter said, Dad, what is this thing in the bathroom? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm like, it's just a water sensor. It's not, I, I don't know what you think I'm doing. But yeah. it's a water sensor, and uh, but the um, but yeah, so just get a collection of them. I I also did. I I was so impressed with it that last year for Christmas, for several of the nerdy or gentlemen in my life and women, I, well, three people, I, I bought a, a hub and several sensors for a, a bunch of people in my life and gave it to them because I'm like, oh, this will be fun for you, and you know, you have a house and you don't want it to get ruined by water either. Yeah, so, yeah. The, that was a, that was a nice upgrade I've done in the last year. Yeah, that's cool. And it looks like the hubs are are not are not too expensive either. No, they're not. In fact, one of the things I've been experimenting with in the Max Markey Labs, which I haven't finished yet, is putting a sensor on the flap of my mailbox. You know, the front door of my mailbox. Yeah. My my mailbox is two houses away from my house, and I would but but my mailman. I don't think he likes to come to my house until like, you know, 7 PM or something, but it's just crazy to me how late they are. But sometimes they'll show up at like one in the afternoon and sometimes they'll show up at when it's almost dark. So I thought, well, that'd be cool. If I put a sensor there, I could give myself a notification when the mailbox opens and then I'll mm-hmm. know that the mail's here, but I'm having a range issue. And I bought a second they have like a little USB stick, like booster, and I have it here. I just haven't installed it yet. I'm going to do a video for the labs on it. I just haven't got around to it yet. But the, um, but yeah. So there's there's a lot you can do with those. When you make the sensors that cheap, suddenly ideas start coming up, and you don't mind spending twenty bucks to give it a shot. 
Yeah, that'd be cool. It'd be good to know when that that shows up. Mine's on my front porch, so my my camera picks up the mail person every every afternoon. Yeah, we actually had somebody blew up my mailbox at some point. You know, you know where I live is pretty peaceful and calm. There's not a whole lot of problems, but you know, teenagers. I think they put an M80 in there. Wow. So we just heard this big boom, and I went outside, and my mailbox was was not there anymore. (laughs) That's incredible, but also terrible at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Teenagers. Now I need to point a camera at my mailbox. There you go. Um, ah, Whatever. It's all good. Um, (laughs) Another thing I've updated that I like is I bought some flick switches, F-L-I-C. Yeah. And they're just little, there's little buttons. Have you seen these things before? Yeah. They're basically just buttons that you can basically do anything with, right? Just about. Yeah. yeah. And again, you got to get a hub with it. But once you get the hub, everything's working. Like, I think part of a home kit setup now is just to get a switch with like 30 Ethernet yep. hubs <laughs> like mm-hmm. on it because everything has a hub. But but these little switches are great. So I've got one under my desk um, at, at, at my desk. And when I press that, it turns the lights off or on in my studio, my existing studio, not the new one. I've got one. Uh, uh, taped to the side of the drawer in my bedside table. Uh, and there's three modes to it. You can press it once, you can press it twice, or you can long press it. So like a long press turns all of the room bed, uh, the lights off in the bedroom. And so you can do, you know, various setups with these and it's just, a, it's just a switch you can stick anywhere. And once you throw it, it's, you know, it's a home kit switch. So you can tie anything to it that home kit can run. Yeah. I, I definitely have a, a little pile of smart home, bridges and stuff in my network closet. And I've got a couple out here in the office as well. Uh, cause the, the older Hue stuff requires one. And then I also have one for the, uh, the shades in my studio. So if you've seen pictures of my studio, I have two windows that are really high and I need to be able to, or I want to be able to control sunlight in here if I'm doing photography or video and like basically black out the windows and I went with uh, these Serena Smart Shades. They're actually owned by the same company that does Lutron. And they have a bunch of options. Mine are custom because my window sizes are an unusual size. These were prohibitively expensive. I had this order set up for like weeks. And I could just not pull the trigger. And then I finally did. But yeah. it's got a bridge that's just plugged into my network out here in the studio. And they come with a little remote, but the bridge makes it HomeKit accessible. So I have them tied into some automation. So it, uh, if they're open and it's an hour before sunset, I want them to close. And then if they're already closed, they don't they don't do anything, right? So if I close them, like on over a weekend, they stay closed till I come back out. And I, of course, can manually trigger them. I have them wired into some stream deck buttons so I can open and close them. Or I have a preset that they're open 50% of the way. And I can do that through HomeKit. And it's sweet. I mean, this is by far the most expensive smart home thing I've ever done and may ever do unless I replace all my light switches with Lutron switches. But there was no way because the height of these windows, there wasn't going to be a great way to do this sort of with a manual shades without like really long pull strings and like then you're running there's like what if it jams i gotta get an extension ladder out to fix it and uh these things are battery powered they have like six or eight d cell batteries in them and i've run them for nine months now and they've they've been 
totally fine. Um, in fact, a lot of the time, I kind of just leave them where they are. In fact, during the summer, I have disabled my one hour before sunset uh, rule because the reason I wanted that is in the winter when it gets dark earlier and I'm you know at, still at work at 530 and it's getting dark, I didn't want the light in the studio to be visible outside because like you can kind of see the studio from the street uh, at a certain point and I don't want to draw attention to it. But in the summer, yeah. I'm not out here that late, you know, and so I've actually turned off that automation during the summer. Like I have no idea how long the batteries will last, but so far I've been I've been really impressed and they're easy to switch the batteries. They they come with these mounts that you put into the wall. And then basically like the cover pivots, I think pivots up and you can replace the batteries without having to take the whole thing down. And it was definitely a two person job to put them up there, but uh, they will be up there for all time now. Yeah, I have saved the link because this is like the kind of thing I would really like to do in the studio as well once it's done. But yeah, every time I've looked into these, they're super expensive from all vendors. And uh, the the most reasonable one I've ever seen is the stuff IKEA makes. Yeah. But that's very limited. I mean, they're set sizes and set colors. Yeah. If you want to make it look nice, you got to pay like three times mm-hmm. to do it custom yeah. and, uh, and for me i had to go custom because of the size of the windows because this just we these windows are actually recycled uh we found them at some like construction supply place and they've been pulled out of um some commercial building so like really well insulated which is what i wanted to look really nice but they're not a normal size at all and so um and the the casing in them is very deep because the walls are really thick in here for sound deadening. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I had to choose like, do I want to mount them in the casing or out or outside the casing? I ended up doing outside the casing to get a better light seal, but yeah, I very quickly uh, extinguished all possibilities of using, of using a, a pre-made thing. But if, if one of the key things does work for you, like it is really sweet having shades or blinds, to be part of your smart home. I mean, I'm, uh, I really like it. I really do. Yeah. I'm going to do some version of this in the studio. I may be using the Ikea ones. I don't know what I'll do, but, uh, that's like phase two of indoor studios, <laughs> but the, uh, yeah, I get it. Uh, something about home automation I'm kind of excited about right now is an addition. And that is, I ordered this thing called home assistant and they've got the newest version is home assistant yellow. And my understanding is it's supposed to ship to me in the next couple months. Rosemary Orchard has one of these. I mean, of course, we have a podcast called Automator, so home automation is a frequent topic. But uh, Rose loves her home assistant. I think she rolled her own with a, um, you know, she just built her own because there's a way to do it. But I didn't want to deal with it. I said, you know, 150 bucks, just send me one. It's a done. I don't have to, like, monkey mm-hmm. with it. But it uses a web interface. And... As I understand it, it works with home uh, Apple HomeKit devices, but gives you way more control over them. Hmm. And um, I don't know enough about it yet. Rose just said, I will really like this. So I ordered it. And <laughs> when it comes yeah. in, I'll talk about it more on the show. But that is like coming down the road for me. And hopefully that gives me more control. Yeah, this looks pretty cool. It's using a Raspberry Pi and some other stuff. And and there there's a lot of cool products like this. Uh, there's also one that will bring your Nest stuff into HomeKit. Yeah. 
I think called the Starling Bridge. There's there's a bunch of stuff out there. And of course, you can just run home bridge yourself. And a lot of people do run home bridge on a Raspberry Pi, but I've got a Mac Mini. It's a 2018 Intel Mac Mini that's under the TV. Basically, as a DVD player at this point, like we don't even really. I mean, it is like a the family iTunes. So anytime anybody buys something on iTunes, it gets downloaded. But that's so rare now between Apple Music and streaming services. Um, yeah. But I have HomeBridge running on that, which like you do not need a Mac to run HomeBridge. In fact, it's actually kind of worse in a lot of ways because there was some version of Mac OS that it updated to and it totally like blew up my HomeBridge install because it updated some version of, you know, some underlying system and had to yeah. rebuild it all. Um, at some point, I will probably just rebuild it on a Raspberry Pi and just like tape it <laughs> to the underside of my desk somewhere. But it yeah. is cool that we can add these things and get more control or bring things into the the ecosystem that that don't that wouldn't be there otherwise. And then the other thing on the home automation topic, of course, I think we should mention Matter. You know, there is a joint consortium between Apple and Google and a lot of the people making this stuff, where they're coming up with a single unified protocol mm-hmm. for the devices all to talk. And I, I think what happened was when the big home automation race started, Apple was hoping that they would become the controlling platform, but they never did. Uh, partly because they had embedded encryption in it that made it harder to get more more adoption. Uh, but uh, they have now kind of simplified that, so you, you're seeing more devices. At the same time, Google was hoping they'd become the controlling home automation platform. That basically, all these horses got in a race and they tied, you know? Yeah. And, and I think the companies have just decided, or if they didn't tie, it's close enough that there's not a clear winner. And they decide, you know what, let's just make one thing that, so everybody can buy stuff and it'll work on all of the stuff. And, uh, that's matter. And it's, it's, it's rolling out. I mean, Apple is, is signed on and Google and the major players. So going forward, you're going to be wanting to look for, uh, equipment that supports matter. And I think pretty much anything that supports HomeKit is probably going to support Matter. Yeah, that's uh, that's going to be really nice when that that happens. I think there will probably still be some things that require like custom bridges or you know sort of other oddball hardware. But the hope is that that stuff becomes less necessary, and that whatever you get is going to work with Google, Amazon, and Apple. And I mean, right now. A lot of stuff has kind of gone that way, but even a couple of years ago, that was not the case. I mean, in the yeah. early days, it was like, I bought this Switch and it only worked with Amazon, and now I'm switching to HomeKit, and I literally have to throw the Switch away because it doesn't work. And Matter's vision is that that is a, a thing of the past, which would be awesome. This episode of Mac Power Users is made possible by SourceGraph. So you've hired a new developer to join your team. That's awesome, but now you have to spend time getting them onboarded. If your company is growing, this is going to become a common occurrence, and onboarding a new developer is a big undertaking each and every time you have to do it. One of the biggest challenges for new hires is getting them up to speed with the project their team has already been working on. This is especially tricky if the code bases your developers are working in are already large. Thankfully, SourceGraph makes it easy to move quickly, even in those big code bases. Developers know that knowledge is most useful when it's findable. 
Centralization is helpful, but given the fact that most companies store knowledge in at least two different locations, making knowledgeable accessible isn't always easy. SourceGraph is a code intelligence platform, and it gives developers what they need to drive their own learning over time and in different situations. Teams without SourceGraph need to rely on asking colleagues or reviewing out-of-date documentation, which is cumbersome and time-consuming. But with SourceGraph, every developer can search across millions of repositories to find specific code, saving time for themselves and everyone else. So when questions do come up, you know it's about the big stuff. SourceGraph was created to make developers' lives easier. And today, they work with leading companies across every industry, including three out of the five top tech companies, plus PayPal, Uber, Plaid, GE, Reddit, Atlassian, and more. Visit about.sourcegraph.com to learn more. That's about.sourcegraph.com to find out why some of the biggest tech companies in the world are using SourceGraph and to see what SourceGraph can do for you. You can also visit the link in the show notes to let them know you heard about them from us. Our thanks to SourceGraph for their support of Mac Power users. Well, that's not all the feedback we got this month. Uh, John wrote in about iWork tabs, and I thought his comments were really uh, helpful. I wanted to share them with the listeners. And he was talking about one of his favorite features. We had we'd covered iWork off and on, you know, the pages, numbers, keynote apps. And he says, you know, something that doesn't get a mention is the ability to add tabs. And this is a macOS thing that they incorporated into it. Like the easiest example would be pages where you can have multiple documents open, but they show up as tabs in the app. So you can just click through them. And uh, John has five to 10 apps open a day. He's, he's a teacher. So he breaks the tabs by, you know, his classes and, and grade levels and whatever he's doing with his kids. And then he can just jump between them out of one window. Whereas with Microsoft Word, every document would be a separate document. And then you you, you know you get all this pollution on your desktop. And mm-hmm. just kind of the clean use of tabs kind of got me thinking, do you do that much, Stephen? Do you use these tabs when they built it into a, an app? You know, I use them in Finder a lot, but I don't really use them in other applications like i don't use them in pages or or other text editors really i think because i I don't if i find myself moving between documents i kind of want to see them both right so i'll have like one on the right and one on the left i think it's cool but it doesn't really fit kind of the way that i work most of the time yeah Uh, one way i use this is with omnifocus i have a script that opens omnifocus but then sets up tabs with my major perspectives where I, I don't need to see them against each other, but during the day I may want to jump between, you know, the inbox and the action list or the Max Barkey active project list. And I actually find the tab interface to be really good for that. So um, th- there are apps where it does make sense, but in order to have it, you've got to have really a Mac native app because this is part of the Mac OS kind of thing that stri- I, I can't remember. It was about two, three years ago. This got added you know, where they, they made it easy for native apps to add tabs and the developer has to support it. And, you know, that's just not true with a lot of apps, but I work OmniFocus, Safari, Finder. There are apps out there that do it. We also heard from Andrew and he's, uh, he had uh, said a few episodes ago, we did an interview, which we discussed having different email clients for different uses. I think it was Mike Hurley. Was it Mike Hurley did that? Well, uh, I guess- he, yeah, he, he does do that. Yeah. 
uh, I don't know who it was, but Mike hasn't been on the show for a long time. I don't know who Andrew's talking about, but it does come up once in a while. And uh, Andrew has uh, work accounts and personal accounts. And this is a baller move. He His work is on Outlook. And when he goes on vacation, he deletes Outlook. He just deletes the app. That's pretty awesome. I love that. Andrew, you're my hero, you know, but then he does, um, personal stuff in Apple mail. So it's very, you know, it's a good strategy, honestly, to keep them separate, you know, uh, contextual computing, ding, 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 right. Yeah. When you go into your inbox, if you see work email and personal email at the same time, suddenly, um, it's very easy to get distracted or, you know, get aggravated about something at work that you shouldn't have even known about. You know, I think the unified inbox is a terrible idea. So that's one <laughs> way to attack this. But uh, having separate apps also works. Do you do that? Uh, I don't. Everything is in mail. I used yeah. to. My last sort of jobby job, we ran on Google Apps and I would use Gmail for work stuff. And then I would just ignore it on the yeah. on the weekends when I was on vacation or like move it off my home screen if I was on vacation. It's all in mail for now. One thing I, I want to experiment with, though, and I just haven't yet, is in focus modes and the new releases, one thing it can do, or one thing Apple talked about, even if it's in the beta yet, is you can turn off e- certain email accounts and certain focus modes. And I would like a weekend focus mode that basically all it does is it turns off you know notifications from a couple of apps and then hides my work email. Yeah, you could also hide your work calendar in that if you wanted. And yeah. um, when the third-party apps start showing up with support for this, I think this this is a feature that we haven't discussed much and hasn't got much press because it really does require third-party support, I think, to be fully implemented. But I think it's a great idea that you could turn a focus mode on and hide your work email or hide your uh, your personal email or have calendar show up. I I you know I love this stuff. Apple is like they're playing my game right now, and uh, I want to see them do as much as they can with it. That said, the last few weeks, I have been using MailMate again on my Mac. And people who are in the Max Market Labs know all about it because I've sent out a bunch of videos and stuff on it. And, man, MailMate is awesome. Yeah, I want to dig into this it's in, in some future episode because yeah. uh, I've played with it in the past but not recently. And so I definitely want to hear how your experience has been. Yeah, the trick is setting a custom keybinding file. And this is like super nerdy stuff but if you're willing to go down that rabbit hole um it's really hard to beat the speed of mailmate it's not as pretty as apple mail but it is powerful what are we playing with these days steven anything new or fun i mean i i think we've uh, we've covered my stuff i mean a lot of reminders and then basically uh i'm deep in calendar calendar land so i've got some stuff that, that i want to to get into um there are a couple of ways to add, speaking of HomeKit, uh, my mini split in my studio is by a company called Mr. Cool, which is like, what a name. And there are a couple of ways to get that on to HomeKit, and that's kind of on my list, but it's been, I've kind of been heads down on the calendar. This whole t- discussion of HomeKit has me very excited about what could I really do in the studio space? Like, how far can I push this, you know, and, uh, I'm ready to abuse it, but that, that'll be another day. Um, the, uh, I'll tell you something that I'm playing with and I'm increasingly falling in love with is this app hook. You know, we had Luke on the show, I don't know, about a year ago. The hook app is an app that creates a link to basically anything on your Mac. 
and it allows you to connect them in the application. So if you open an OmniFocus task, it'll show you the email that's connected to it or the Obsidian or the craft document. And it's just a very easy way to link things together. And as I continue to beat the drum for contextual computing, those direct links are the way that you get your work done faster. I wasn't using it as much because I have so much stuff in DevonThink and I can link anything in DevonThink, but I have some data outside of DevonThink and the Finder and Hook lets me do that. And just the way it automatically connects everything together, um, it just it brings it to a new level. And they just celebrated their third year. Uh, as a full disclosure, I'm on their board of advisors. I don't get any money or anything for that, but you know, I'm so so into contextual computing, I want to help anybody that's trying to push this forward. You know, they've been around three years. I have faith that they're going to be around. The people behind it, Luke in particular, are is super motivated to make this happen. And it, you know, if you spend the time to learn the kind of the hook system, it does give you a way to jump around your Mac and get to other things very quickly. I'm going to make some content for this for the Mac Sparky Labs and eventually something publicly. Um, but I'm I'm kind of figuring out my workflows right now. But I uh, I'm very interested in this app lately. Yeah, we had uh, we had him on the show like 100 episodes ago or something. So it is yeah. cool to see their their third anniversary, and that's something else I'm, I'm looking forward to your exploration of because it hasn't really stuck for me yet. Yeah. And so I want to find some so maybe some more ways to uh, to explore it. As silly as it sounds they changed the keyboard shortcut to control H, which is a very easy shortcut to remember. And I think that almost makes it even easier to apply hook links, but yeah, I, I will cover this. We'll talk about it. Um, uh, the idea of this is a good one. I, this is what I kind of wish Apple would build into the operating system, you know, uh, because I don't like having it done by a third party but it's a third party that I trust and I think it's going to be around for a while, but this really should be a system feature. Although I don't think Apple would iterate it as fast as Luke has. Yeah, that's probably true. All right. So that wraps it up for today's feedback show. If you have feedback, uh, we have forums at talk.macpowerusers.com. Each episode has its own uh, thread. So you can put stuff in there. We're always grabbing things from there for the uh, feedback. There's also a feedback form on the website. So let us know what you're thinking. We'll get it in the outline for the next show. And uh, thank you to our sponsors today. That's Text Expander, Memberful, Indeed, and Sourcegraph. And we'll see you next time.